All right, I know everybody's focused on one thing today only that's happening. There's something really special going on, right? Groundhog Day. It's Groundhog Day, right? It's, you all woke up thinking that. Yeah, right? No, there's a little game going on today. But what I'm going to ask you to do is get in this game today. Put your head and your heart into a different place for just a few minutes. More like a half an hour, okay? Just Can you do that with me? You guys nod your head, yeah? Ready to do that and just not think about football? Um, we want to look ahead. What we want to do today is look ahead. We're starting a new series called Framework. And we want to look ahead at what um, is coming up uh, in the next three weeks. And what's coming up is Lent. We put it up on the board. Uh, Lent starts on Ash Wednesday. And traditionally, the church for centuries has honored this time of Lent as a way to do certain things where you can focus on becoming more like Jesus. It was a season on the Christian calendar. Uh, modeled. It's modeled after the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert before he started his ministry. That's why we, Lent is a 40-day period. This is how it's been for centuries. Okay, He spent that time in the wilderness preparing himself for the work that God had for him. And he was alone and he was praying in the desert and he was tempted... And inspired by that, the Christian tradition inspires us, uh, inspires us after that to focus on three ideas. The main three ideas for Lent were prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So if you want to write that down, you can. The main traditional ideas for Lent are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So most commonly, what we do now, when you hear the word Lent, what's the most common thing people do when they get to Lent? What do they do? Give something up, right? We give something up. Like what? Like the, the, the most famous ones are like beer, wine, and chocolate, right? And you give up beer, wine, and chocolate, and everybody giggles because you're like, no way I ain't doing that. Um, but I want to dig further, deeper into this idea of Lent, the idea that there are practices and patterns that transform us. And by being transformed, we are prepared to participate in God's mission. Like you can't just, the idea, like we just talked about being baptized and not treading water, but learning how to swim. You can't just be like Jesus without practice. It takes practice. You aren't just baptized and then you come out shining and you're invincible in terms of all the bad habits you have and any, any addictions that you used to have are just wiped clean. Okay, that's not what happens. There are practices that transform our minds and our bodies and how we live and act in real relationships with others. And those practices then prepare us better to participate in God's mission. So for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about some classic spiritual practices that followers of Jesus, and even those followers of God that came before Jesus, the practices that they use to help, to help us be transformed now and become the kind of people that can actually do the things that Jesus did. So because... Being like Jesus means learning these actual rhythms and practices. It doesn't just mean, oh, I just want to be like Jesus. I just want to be good. You know, I just don't want to screw up. There's actual things that he did that he modeled for us to repeat, okay, and to do just like he did. And we have to do, the model he gave us is that we do it together. We don't just like go home and I'm going to be by myself and be like Jesus. No, we do it together, okay? So this brings me to a question. I want you to... um, just take a moment here. Turn to your neighbor. We don't hardly ever do this in here, so if you're new, don't be all like freaked out. Just turn to 
turn to the person that came with you for a second and just ask this question. Do, do you think people can change? Tell your neighbor, do you think people can change? All right, now I'm going to ask, no, you've, you've talked to your neighbor for a bit. Good job. That's, that's your little mini exercise in doing life together for today. Okay. I want to hand up for the people who don't think people can change. Anybody? Anybody think you can't change? Okay. You see, good to see you're all being honest with yourselves. How many of you think can change? All of you. Some of you are like, I abstain. Something about being lukewarm and getting off the fence and spitting out of mouth. I don't know. Um, this is a real question that we have to deal with, though, in and of ourselves. Maybe not phrased exactly like that, but we deal with this in our thinking in our head. Because when you apply that question to your own life, now don't raise your hand. Are there things about you that you wish you could change, that you've been trying to change, but you haven't? But you said everybody can change <laughs> because we want to think that. We want to believe that. But I'm here to tell you that it is true in and through Jesus, but it takes practice. It takes practice, not just good intentions. Let me tell you a story here about change. Um, how many of you are familiar with TEDx, TED Talks? Familiar with these? You can watch them online. Delia Cohen, she works for the TED organization. One of the things that they do is they put on these self-organized local events, all right? So she found out about this prison where the prisoners were doing their own little TED Talks in prison. Like, so, and it was a little different than what the format that you might see on YouTube, obviously, because they're in prison, <laughs> okay? And... There was like some of, they'd get up and the group would do like a little skit, which you don't see at the TED Talks, right? And they would like, somebody might sing a song or somebody might tell a, a, a story or whatever, but then they, somebody would say, I want to present on this or something I've learned. And the best ones were like, here's what I did in my life. Here's where I want to go next, you know, type of thing, all right? So she went to check it out. So she says some of the things that she would normally expect at an event were just totally thrown out the window. But when she was there, she met a guy named Dan in prison, a prisoner. And he was the guy who organized the whole thing, okay? And she said he, this is what she said, he was bubbly, fun, and energetic, but he had a giant tattoo on the back of his neck that said, hatred. Okay? She described him as completely charming, playful, fast-talking, fast-thinking, poetic, and creative. And after the event, they got together and came up with a plan. How can we bring this TEDx event to prisons all over the nation, the ones that would want it? How can we spread this out? So she went home and she was super excited about everything. And so she, she got home and she told the bright idea to, to her friends. And then she's like, you know what? I better Google this guy, Dan. So she Googles Dan and she found out how he ended up in prison. And the reason was horrifying. And she was torn because the perpetrator she was reading about online when she got home sounded like a completely different person than the person that she'd met when she went there. The one that she had just interacted with. And in order for her to actually work with him on this idea that they had, she's going to have to make a decision. 
right? She had to decide, is it possible for someone to change? Is it possible for someone to change? Is that person's personality or their DNA, is that that person's destiny? Like they're destined to be this way. You know? Are we simply products of our DNA and our culture and our upbringing, or can people change? Now, we all said people can change, right? If you're like me, though, this is a question you've had to deal with in yourself, in your own way in your life. And for many people who want to change, the way it often plays out is like this. It's not so much a question of, can I change? It's, what's going to happen to me if I don't change? Right? And if you have not had that thought like crystallized for you in and of yourself, there it is for you now. And if you have still not had that thought and you don't think you've had that thought for yourself ever, it will come. It will come at some point. Most of us have reached a similar point about something in our lives where we have dealt with this type of thought. Maybe it's something like having a job where you weren't getting along with others until you realized that a big part of it had something to do with you. Or maybe it was a difficulty in a relationship or a friendship or in your marriage and you realize that the solution in part had to do with you changing. Maybe a lot of it had to do with you changing. Maybe you struggle with an addiction. Maybe you are having financial disaster or a series of financial disasters or a health problem because of something in your life and you're like, man, I need to change this or else something's, it's going to get worse. Most of us eventually come to the point where we realize something has to change. And it's good to get to that point, I think. But the actual changing is really, really difficult. And I think that's why many of us are happy to raise our hands when I ask the question, do you think people can change? Because we're like, yes, because I want to change. I want to change. But very few of us actually do change because it's very hard. And our culture... Our culture makes it really hard. It makes it harder. Our culture is not wired to help us change. And in fact, there's a large growing voice that says it's just discouraging change. It's okay if you stay the same. And often that sounds like, you see it in different shapes and forms, different types of phrases and that kind of thing, but it's stuff like, you know, I just need some self-care. My favorite in Parks and Rec, my wife and I love watching Parks and Rec um, with Amy Poehler, but... (laughs) Donna in there is always saying, treat yourself. You know, that's like, I love it. And I just makes me, I want to go do, I want to treat myself. I want to go to Starbucks. I want to buy whatever. You know, I want to take a day off, blah, blah, blah. It's just love yourself. And there is value to that in terms of boundaries. That's a whole other sermon, like a healthy way to have boundaries and, and be okay with yourself and that kind of thing. But just saying love yourself is actually not too far away from just giving in and saying, I don't want to change. I am who I am. I can't change. I've heard this before. One of of our dear friends said this in regard to something she was dealing with, and she said, I am who I am, and it can't change, and I'm good with that. Fine. That's fine, I guess. But I take issue with this. The reason I take issue with this is that this is really, really different from what the Scriptures promise us. The Scriptures promise us that not only we can change, but we are expected to We are expected to. We can, and we are expected to. We're going to get into this in a minute. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover three things specifically. First, we're going to talk about the idea of the promise of change, and then we're going to talk about the methodology, like how change actually happens in us. And then next week, 
in the weeks following, I want to give you some very specific places to start, some practices that you can kind of adopt and hold on to, some tangible things that you can adopt to help you change. Before we begin those three things, though, we have to be honest about uh, the church's relationship with change. And I don't mean just our church, I mean every church, like the church you grew up in, the church you came to, you were at before this, even this church, if this is your first church, um, the church I grew up in, the church my wife grew up in, um, we have this weird relationship uh, with change in the church. On one hand, I think change defines our story. When you, when you talk about getting baptized, you're like, I'm, I am starting fresh, I'm starting new, things are going to change, right? Jesus called people to change, and when we look at our heroes of the faith, like Peter or Paul, Paul Peter started out as this self-obsessed and only caring about his own problems, and he was not a faithful friend to his other disciples or Jesus. But as the story goes on, he becomes this eloquent leader who is the, is the, like, the father of the church. He led the church across seemingly insurmountable ethnic, ethnical and um, social boundaries that were like, the church was not going to move forward at all. And he stepped into that and said, no, we need to change. And then there's Paul himself, who ended up writing most of your New Testament letters. Who's, he started out as, as what? He's a murdering zealot, basically. He was that guy Dan in the prison, you know. And we love these stories of these heroes in the faith because they show us that someone can change, right? We, we love that. Dramatic conversions. But we have a little problem with that because we also have this basic tenet of faith that we don't always teach really well, and that is grace. We don't teach grace very well. You think we do, but we don't. A lot of the grace that we talk about is often just left at its basic definition, which we, we, you've probably heard this one before. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard grace uh, defined as unmerited favor. See, I heard a couple voices there. Unmerited favor. like some, You're getting favor, good things that are unwarranted, like you, you didn't do, there's nothing in your, you've done nothing to merit them, okay? And the reason we don't go deeper with grace is that we cling to the idea that God loves us no matter what, and he does. He's still going to love us. There's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can, but then we say there's nothing we can do to lose it because God is just going to love us. And we have people saying things like, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. And it's true. But that's not going deeper with grace. That's just kind of leaving it at surface level. What I like to say about that is, if we're not careful, grace becomes a license to behave however we want. Grace becomes a license to behave however we want. And, and honestly, i got to say, I, I spend time in hospitals, and I have done for a long time, and um, visit people in the church, people who are part of the church, this church and past churches, and when it comes time, at the end, people have a lot of questions and a lot of worries and a lot of concerns and a lot of stress because they're like, they're struggling with this very thing. Like, I know God loves me, but I didn't change any of my behavior. I know He loves me, but what's really going to happen here? Because, and they, and they struggle with that, and I walk through them with that. So grace can become a license to behave however we want. We just do whatever we want. In other words, we kind, of, we kind of say, why change? It's just too hard. There's too much going on in life. Why grow if you have grace? And that works 
for a while until you hit a snag. Like you're faced with death or there's a bad habit that you can't kick and it's destroying your life or maybe it's something you've kept with you since before you decided to follow Jesus and you, then you gave your life to Jesus but you just haven't given that thing up. I've had people, I've had students, I've had adults come and tell me, I'll give my life to Jesus but I'm really struggling with sleeping around. But then I go, why do I shake my head? Because me and my counterparts and the, and the long-term mature Christians in churches have not done their job well enough if that person thinks that's okay. They, they've just come to the realization, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> you know? I have tons of examples like that, mostly from college students, so, but that doesn't leave the rest of you off the hook. Okay? Um, maybe you... Maybe you have an anger problem and you lose your temper all the time. Or poor under, a poor understanding of grace just says, well, you're forgiven for that. That's part of your personality that will never change. You're just going to be angry. I've known, I've known a lot of preachers that their vice, when they talk about their vice that they have, every preacher's got to have one vice or whatever. Famous, I love that, love that famous line from Zorro and Antonio Medeiros goes up to the priest and he has a cup of wine. Hey, you're, you're allowed to drink that? He's like, oh, priests are allowed one vice. <laughs> it just cracks me up. A lot of preachers tell me their vice is being angry. And they're angry at a lot of things for a lot of reasons, and it has nothing to do with their... It might be the little things here and now, but it's a lot of stuff stacked up. Their environment and how they were raised and who they are individually and all that stuff, it's all wrapped in one. But does all of that define who you are and who you will be in Christ? And Jesus is saying, no, I expect you to change. There are no consequences for people's actions anymore. That you know, um, it's really a shallow understanding of grace. That it's just like, well, I can do whatever I want. You know, um, there's like a pain because of something we did, and we feel shame. And we could take grace and be like, oh, you know what? God still loves me. And when you say that, it alleviates the pain you have from whatever it is that you did. But it doesn't really teach you anything. It doesn't teach you how to redirect where, where that temptation or that urge to fly off the handle is coming from. It doesn't teach you to avoid situations that can trigger sinful behavior in your life. The idea of grace going hand in hand with the idea that we don't need to change just covers up a lot of nefarious problems. We see people doing unthinkably awful stuff day in, day out in the news. And then they either, they either say sorry or more likely these days they just admit nothing and they don't apologize. But when they do apologize, there are no consequences for their actions. They just say they're sorry, they ask for forgiveness, and they won't do it again, and then everybody just moves on, and they're not held accountable. And by accountable, I don't mean like punished. I mean like, let's help you figure out how to not do that again. Let's, let us help you figure out how to not do that again. They're not held accountable. There's no plan or process or attempt to actually change any real actual behavior. So... So we shouldn't be surprised, though, because we see this all the time. Even churches have taught that repentance just means feeling bad and telling God that you're sorry, and then God, God gives you grace. So this is boiled down grace. It's boiled down to like just the basics, and it becomes an excuse. And this is why Christians can, Christians can passionately endorse politicians on either side. Politicians on either side. Or the third or fourth side, or whatever it is, whoever you follow, you can endorse a politician on either side who does stupid, ignorant, awful, evil things on either side. 
We just forgive them and we just move on. Even though they've done horrendous things. It's why we forgive our pop culture idols. We forgive our movie stars. We forgive our rock stars. We forgive our sports stars. Even though they do reprehensible things. And we say things like, they're only human. They're only human. And whether what you want to admit or not, you're basically saying, when you say they're only human, you're saying, well, I could have done that too. That's what you're saying. That's what you're admitting. And we interject the, the word grace in this boiled down way. So let me make it really clear. Jesus sets an expectation that we can change. That we have the capacity to change. And we must change our behavior. Again, this is why we're doing this now as we move. We're not even to Lent. This is like preparation for Lent, which is preparation for Easter, so that we can properly do the hard work. And when Easter Resurrection Day gets here, we can celebrate in a really profound way and understand what it is that Jesus has done for us and in us on that day. Jesus sets an expectation that we can change and that we have the capacity to change and that we must change as Christians. This is the key point in what is essentially Jesus' very first sermon. So this is in your, on the front of your program, Mark 1, 15. It's a very short sermon. <laughs> There's all this prelude to Mark. Mark is like really short. Mark is the first of the Gospels, if you didn't know. Uh, a lot of scholars think that uh, Matthew and Luke... Um, took Mark as their prototype document and copied a bunch of stuff and then added their own things. Like, you forgot this, Mark. <laughs> you forgot this story, you know. And this is Jesus' first sermon. It says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Sermon over. This is why people like Jesus. No, there's much longer ones. <laughs> really short sermon, right? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, that's a key word, right? It's like, the time has come. Believe the good news, right? No. What's that little word in there? Repent. Repent and believe the good news. That word simply means, in the Greek, turn around. You're walking this way in life, doing these things and these habits and all this stuff. Turn around and walk the other way. Turn around and walk the other way. Repent. Jesus wants us to follow Him and do the things He said to do. In the book of John, in, in chapter 15, verse 14, He says it this way, if, if you are My friends, if you are My friends, you will do what I command. And sometimes it's translated as, you are My friends if you do what I command. Depending on the translation. We put the if in a couple different ways. But he's basically saying, if. That word if is a big deal. It's a big deal. So here's another question. Turn to your neighbor and ask him this question. Does Jesus really mean he wants us to repent? What's your neighbor say? Do we have any no's? Chickens, no. I... In the same passage, just a little earlier in John 15, Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. It doesn't say whoever believes in me will come to church on Sunday morning two out of four times a month. Oh, snap. 
Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. So the stuff that we're talking about, the stuff that Jesus did, what did he do? Oh, I don't know, fasting, forgiving enemies, living generously, stuff like that. Which doesn't just happen because you like wake up one morning and you're like, I want to do that today. Like you have to get there, <laughs> you know. Jesus taught that you can do the things he taught, and he promised that his followers would do even more than him. Jesus was the one who taught how to change. He taught parables and dealt with real people that help illustrate what real change looks like. And then Paul comes along in his own life. you got the, three, the big three, right? Jesus, Paul, and Peter. Paul comes along after the change in his own life. And what you don't realize, very, what we often don't realize when you're just reading the text is that Paul kind of disappears for a big chunk of time. Like the whole thing with he becomes a Christian, the road, you know, the road to Damascus and all that, with Jesus and the light shining, and he has to go and get his sight re- given back to him and everything. And then, where, and then it doesn't just like switch to him going and planting churches. He's gone for like 10 years. In case you didn't know that. He's like off, he's like off doing something. A lot of scholars think he went somewhere to the east and like of Jerusalem somewhere with some people and he learned how to be a Christian. He learned how to follow Jesus and then he comes back on the scene and we can only assume that he's been working on being more and more like Jesus. And he's back in Acts, and he's the first major missionary starting churches and developing leaders. Hint, hint. You know? Really, what he went around doing is he went around the ancient Mediterranean world, and he created little academies. He created uh, little Hogwarts schools of being like Jesus. Okay? So that people could do the things that he was doing for the reasons that he did them all over the Mediterranean. It was like little schools everywhere where people were learning how to change their life and do the things Jesus said. So what was Paul's big idea and method while doing this? And that's what I really want to touch on today. And we're going to borrow heavily today and in the next couple of weeks from a Christian author named Dallas Willard who is examining Paul's words and others about how to do this. Um, I've mentioned Dallas Willard a lot in here and he's got several good books. The one I'm going to be concentrating on in case you want to pick it up, you could do worse reading this, called The Spirit of the Disciplines. Willard does some borrowing in that book. Um, He interacts with another author named C.S. Lewis. Anybody ever heard of him? C.S. Lewis? Okay, just a few of you. Wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's the one most people know. There's actually better books he's written than that, even though that's a really good one. Um, And he wrote this other one where he, it's it's basically a play um, where two demons are talking to each other. And you're like, what? Yeah, two demons are talking to each other, Uncle Screwtape and his nephew, Wormwood, and they're talking about how can we jack you all up? And by you, I mean all you people in here. How can we mess you up, tempt you, make you go off the rails, make you sin so that you're in our camp and you're going to come to hell with us? And Uncle, Uncle Screwtape is instructing his nephew, this is how you get the job done. But Wormwood's having a little trouble, okay? And so I, wanna, I want to borrow, this is, so to make sense of this, this is Dallas Willard talking about C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters and giving his commentary on a particular passage. So here's the quote. Um, he first stop, starts off by saying that Paul has a, this is a mouthful, he, he says Paul has a fundamental psychotheological insight. 
about spirituality and habit. Okay? He's like, Paul has a fundamental psychotheological understanding of spirituality and habit. But here's the quote. He's talking about, this is the quote from the, from the demon to demon here, so don't, don't get confused by this. He's talking to his apprentice, and he says, Nevertheless, he says, there is no need to despair. This is the uncle talking to the nephew. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn into the enemy's camp, and they're now with us. And the enemy for these two is who? God. Okay, Jesus. And they've been reclaimed. All of the habits of the patient, that would be you and me, like, this is your patient, Wormwood. You're assigned to worth. And you need to tempt him to make him mess up. So he says, all, of the, all the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Ooh, isn't this, this is a weird way of coming at it, but it's highly effective, right? To get in the head of your enemy and see how he's viewing you, seeing how he's trying to trip you out and, and outmaneuver you on the chessboard, right? So then, Willard gives his commentary on this passage, and he says, Uncle Screwtape has deep insight into the psychology of redemption. If a convert's habits remain the same, they will realize little of the life in Christ. Right? This means that if we want to see actual tangible change, it's a matter of changing our habits. We need to change our habits, right? He goes on to explain Paul's approach, and he starts in Romans, and this is the passage that he talks about, and it's a brilliant piece of work by Paul. I want to read that to you now. It's from Romans chapter 6. I think it starts in verse 11. Consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have a new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do right for the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Yeah. So then Willard breaks it down. I want to breeze through this really fast. I know I talked a lot at the beginning about our announcements. I was kind of excited about that. But hang with me for a minute. You're just going to eat and veg out and watch TV later today. Just concentrate. Concentrate for a minute. He breaks it into three stages that have to do with our habits, okay? He calls it the three stages of personal redemption. Does that sound good to you? you want some personal redemption? The three stages of how people change. So let's borrow his insight for a minute. He says the first stage. Let's put the first stage up there. You were baptized into Christ and you have a new identity. If you have not been baptized and you want to change and you want a new life and you have an inkling that this Jesus person might actually have been a real person and he's got a plan for you, Please come talk to me. Sign up for the baptism class. Because that's where it begins. You, it's the starting line. You were baptized into Christ and you now have a new identity. You ever think you want a new identity sometimes? Yeah. The first step is that you're baptized into Christ. And what you need to know is that when you do this, you do have a new identity in baptism. You get a new identity. And you get power that comes with that. It's not like superpower. It's not like stuff that you see on TV with superheroes and stuff like that. 
But here's another way of thinking about it. I'll give you an analogy. Beth and I will be celebrating our 20th anniversary this summer. You can clap. <laughs> we're killing it, honey. Yeah. There were times where we weren't, but we're killing it now. <laughs> we got this. In all of our years of marriage, I want to tell you one, just one thing. There's many things I've learned. I'm sure you need to ask her what she's learned. <laughs> but here's one thing that I've learned. It's that before, when there was something, in the time before we were married, which is hard to think back out about now, so that was a long time ago. Um, when I had to do something, when I had to think about the future, when I had to make up my mind about a decision, I thought about myself. Just myself. Okay? What is my capacity and energy for going out on a Friday night? How much money do I have? Where do I want to go? I only had my identity and my own capacity and only me and my power to worry about. Beth and I got married and I discovered a cool thing. It, takes some, it took some time for me to discover. It's not like, oh, I got married and I woke up and went, yes, discovered this. No, it took some time. But here's the thing. It took some adjusting to not just thinking about me. And this is why a lot of marriages fail right at the beginning because they're only thinking about them and not each other, right? So, when it comes to decisions about what we're going to do and how we're going to spend our lives and use the gifts that God has given us, we get to do that together. We, when we got married, we had a new identity together. It wasn't just Beth anymore. It wasn't just Worth anymore. It's what we affectionately call, now it's with our kids added into it. And like this, this is something that needs, just a side note here. When you get married before you have kids, encourage this with everybody you know that's young when they get married. You're a family right then. Before the kids. You're a family right then. That understanding helps so much on a lot of levels. And then your, your kids get added into the family, right? Whenever they come. And hopefully they come. And what we, we affectionately call ourselves Team Wheeler now, all the time, you know. After we got hitched, we have access, and, and if you've gotten married, maybe you haven't thought about it this way, and I certainly didn't think about it this way for a long time, but you have access now to a completely higher level of capacity, to a completely higher skill set. It's not just you. It's you and that other person. It's a bunch of more capacity and skill and power for dealing with life. So when you have a new identity, as Scripture teaches in baptism, when you are baptized into Christ, you have this new identity in Jesus, and we get access to His stuff and His skills and His character and His capacities and His way of loving and living and His power. We get access to that. It's not just you anymore. It's a new identity with Him living in you and through you and for you and with you completely. So when you're baptized into Christ, you have a new identity and access to the power to live like Jesus and do what He does. That's just stage one. Personal redemption. The second stage is about how you reckon is how Willie, he's like, I reckon, I reckon we should do this. 
Don't you reckon things every day? Yeah. It's just a word for think, right? It's a word for think. He says you need to think with a new attitude. You need to think with a new attitude. You have a new identity, and now you need to think with a new, new, new attitude. We use our new attitude to think about life and the world we live in. It's a new mindset is the way what he's talking about. With this new mindset, we recognize that we are new people. And although we have a bunch of old impulses, a bunch of old urges, a bunch of old habits that are like hardwired, this new mindset recognizes that as you begin to follow Jesus, those things do not define you anymore. Those things don't define you. You have the ability to choose differently. This is how Willard describes the process. We bring the old person to our minds. Think about who you were before you knew Jesus. Or think about, think about whatever it is that you struggle with that you know is a sin and you don't want to keep doing it. Something habitual. Maybe something you used to struggle with and hopefully you've gotten over it. But think about that. Bring that old person into your mind and say with confidence in God and our new life, this is not and shall not be me. Boom! <laughs> yeah. Anybody in here ever read any Brene Brown? Watched any of her TED Talks? You know who Brene Brown is? Highly recommend. Write it down. Brene Brown. She talks a lot about shame. This is similar to what she talks about when she talks about the difference between guilt and shame. She says in some of her works and in one of her TED Talks, shame says, it's when you do something bad and you say to yourself, I'm bad. I'm a bad person. That's shame. Guilt is different. Guilt is, I did something wrong. You see the difference there? Guilt is, I did something bad, but I'm, I'm not a bad person. I did something bad. That's guilt. Shame is, I am a bad person. And Willard says, while looking at Lewis and Paul and Romans, he says, do this. Let's keep that phrase up there for a minute. Why don't you do this with me? For just Close your eyes. Just close your eyes. I know it's a little weird. I already made you talk to your neighbors so they know what you look like. Just close your eyes. Um, think about that. Think about your old life. Think about what that one hang-up is that you can't get over, some impulse that you act on where you know you're not following Jesus or something you don't do that you should be doing. Think about that. And with your eyes still closed, repeat after me. That is not, say it with me, that is not and shall not be me. Let's say it again. That is not and shall not be me. One more time. That is not and shall not be me. Amen. You can open your eyes. That's the second stage. It's a new mindset, a new attitude. The third stage, as Willard puts it, is to submit. He says this. You submit your members to righteousness, which is just saying, it's members is like saying the parts of your body. So like your brain, your ears, your eyes, your mouth, your lips, your nose, your hands, your fingers, your toes, your legs. Submit your body to righteousness. Everything. Submit all those things to righteousness. Which means learn new habits with your physical body. New ways of using your bodies. Willard puts it this way. Let's put this quote up here. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. 
You catch that? That is much deeper understanding of grace. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Like, you can't earn it. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. He says in another quote, if we refuse to practice, it is not God's grace that fails when a crisis comes, but our own nature. When a crisis comes, we ask God to help. This bad habit of mine has turned into an addiction. It's ruining my life. Help me, God. Why has this happened? You know, We ask God to help us and cannot because we have not our nature are out, and I wrote that wrong, but he basically says, we ask God to help us, and he cannot, because we have, not made our, we have not made our nature our ally, is what it should say. We have not made our own nature our ally. The practicing is ours. It's not God's. He's like, listen, grace is given to you for free. You cannot earn it. But you need to put some effort into practicing to become like Jesus. That's what he's saying. God regenerates us and puts us in contact with all his divine resources, but he cannot and will not make us walk according to his will. He is not going to force you to be like him. The practicing part is ours. He's not going to magically go, boom, you're perfect. Boom, you're perfect. And that's where we get stuck because we want to change, right? We all raised our hand. We want to change. We want to form new habits, but it's really hard. How do people change? And I would say this. I'm going to sum up those three habits. I rewrote them. Following Jesus provides a new identity, which gives us a new mindset for developing new habits. Following Jesus provides a new identity, which gives us a new mindset for developing new habits. Does anybody in here want to have some new habits this year? Yeah? A few of you? Good. So I think we have a choice here at West Seattle Christian, and that is the refusal to believe that however you were raised, whatever DNA you think is making you the way you are, your personality, your past behavior, your destiny, that none of that controls your future life that you'll live. Instead, we need to make the choice that Jesus, we need to cling to the promise that he gives us that we can change, that we can be a people who can change. We don't have to change just because we want to. I mean, think about that. What are the things that you could change but you don't have to in your life? And what'll, But what will happen if you don't change anything? What happens if you don't change? That's that question. Like, It's not like I want to change. What happen, what's going to happen to me if I don't change? I, I would love it if I could begin having a lot more conversations as we all get older together and we're in the hospital with each other from time to time. I would love it if the conversation changed and it was more like, with confidence, I practiced the things Jesus did and he said I could be like him and I feel like I did. I would love it if that's how the conversation went. What fights are you going to keep having at home at work? What vices do you have that could grow into addictions? What patterns do you have that you might pass on to children or friends around you that if you don't change, what's going to happen? So on the other hand, imagine what kind of community we could be if we became people who could change, like Jesus says we could. 
Let's put that slide back, back up there again. Following Jesus provides a new identity, which gives us a new mindset for developing new habits. I just want to read over you. I'm going to ask the band to come. And uh, what we're going to do, we're going to do it here a little differently. Uh, they're going to play for just a little bit. I want you guys to go to the last song. And we'll, we'll um, come to the table here while they play and not sing. They'll just do it instrumentally. And when you're ready, you can come to the table. And the way we do that here, uh, we have an open table, which means if you believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God and that he died and rose again, then, then this is the, the table, the place where you need to be. Um, take the bread and dip it in the cup, and then um, I will lead you in taking it. We'll take it all together at the end. I just want to read this to you about what this means for us reread this scripture in light of the change that Jesus knows he wants to make in you and he expects to make in you if you're a follower of him. Would you stand as I read this and then come when you're ready? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us every great and precious, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For it is you who, for it, for it is you who do these things, for you who do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Come when you're ready.